According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me as we get started in the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews 4, and we're in the final paragraph of Hebrews 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. And uh, this is where, man, I don't know if you've been enjoying Hebrews up till now or not, but it's about to get good. All right, there we, uh, we're going to be introduced to our priesthood here. Uh, this forms a bridge from chapters 1 through 4 across into chapter 5, and everything that follows is about our priesthood in Christ and the blessings that we have to come boldly before that throne of grace. And uh, this is what we have. And uh, so we can draw near with confidence. We belong there. And uh, to not draw near with confidence would be an insult to the sacrifice our Savior made. That, uh, that allows us to be there. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the Father to set aside our distractions, to set aside our concerns, to fix our eyes firmly upon Jesus. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning and the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you for, uh, for Jeff Phipps and his presentation of Camparete, and we do pray for your blessings there as well, Father, for the staff and faculty and campers, everyone involved, Father, for safety and blessing, Father. I thank you for the quality pastors they bring in to do the teaching and just the uh, tremendous program that they've been doing there for several years now. Father, we uh, thank you for our mothers. We thank you for Mother's Day and the impact that a Christian mother has in uh, in the life of their children and father uh, just give you the praise and glory for all that you do and now father we commit to you our time that our time would be honoring pleasing uh, redeeming that uh, we wouldn't be daydreaming or goofing off that we would be um, serious students of your word father as we uh, as we are diligent to present ourselves before you thank you father for your truth in jesus christ's name we pray amen All right, so we've been dealing with the Word of God in verse 12, how it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The point is, in chapter 4, we need to enter into rest. We need to have the mental attitude of faith rest that God has designed us to have. And if we don't, His Word will expose that. His Word is our judge. His Word is ready to cut and pierce and judge how we're living and how we're thinking. There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So it's serious. It is a serious business and we are accountable if we are pleasing to him or not pleasing to him. And if we fail to enter into rest, then he will be angry with us, even as he was angry with the wilderness generation. And even as they died in the wilderness and and were not able to enter into rest. And so this is the parallel for us to understand. However, With all of those warnings and with all those scary ideas comes some incredible, incredible encouragement. And that immediately follows here in verses 14 and following. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, 
let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, so these are our verses. And whatever we get to this morning, we get to. And what we don't get to, we'll try to cover next week. But this is, uh, this is such an encouragement and it's such a bridge that really spans from chapter 4 across to chapter 5 and following. In fact, there are commentators and, and exegetes that actually prefer to put the, the chapter division in front of verse 14 and include these verses within chapter 5 as far as that goes. But um, let's look at it here. Therefore, we, since we have a great high priest, all right, since Jesus is our Savior, how then shall we live? What then shall we do? And this is what uh, we're going to center on here today. Hebrews four fourteen through 16 forms a closing parallel to the prologue. Do you remember way back when we started in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4? There was a dynamic prologue that introduced the whole book. And now these verses form kind of the conclusion to that introduction that they, they parallel marvelously. You might remember uh, in Hebrews 1, it says Jesus, remember this? He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is just powerful. That is amazing. That means that Jesus Christ did what He did on the cross and it was once and for all. He doesn't have to do it again. He doesn't have to do it again. Now the high priest in the Old Testament, what happened? He would go in there by himself one day a year and he would do what he would do, but then what? He'd come back out. (laughs) He didn't pass through the heavens, I'll tell you that. And he wasn't seated at the right hand of God. But Jesus was seated at the right hand of God. Jesus passed through the heavens. And this becomes such a contrast. And so now we have a much greater priesthood that's not only a great high priest in terms of Jesus is superior to Aaron, but you and me, we are a part of that priesthood. And we get to enter within the veil. Something that no no Jew could do in the Old Testament. The high priest had to go in there all by himself and then come back out. But we... You and I, all of us, we get to go within the veil. And not just one day a year either. All day, every day. We get to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ. We get to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And so we have these amazing blessings. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having passed through the heavens. And that is a big deal. That is a big deal. All the disciples were sad that Jesus was leaving and he said, what are you sad for? It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Holy Spirit cannot come. The helper cannot come, right? He said, it's to your advantage that I go away. And uh, the fact that he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high is powerful. That means you and I have, have resources that no Old Testament believer ever had. That we have, if we sin, we have an advocate before the Father's throne, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a victorious Savior seated in victory at the Father's right hand. It's a glorious thing that we have here in the church age. So having passed through the heavens. Now this is also, by the way, going to get recapped in chapter 8. The author of Hebrews does a marvelous job reminding us from time to time of, of exactly what it is that uh, that we're seeing here. So in case you missed it... Um, Hebrews 4.14 says, we have a great high priest. 
And if you were sleeping during that sermon, then in Hebrews 8, he says it again. In Hebrews 8, 1, he kind of encapsulates seven whole chapters by reviewing and saying, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That is powerful. And the author of Hebrews keeps coming back to it again and again. I'm going to keep coming back to it again and again. All right? Because this is more than a priest. This is a king and a priest. This is God himself, our redeemer. And all of the positional truth realities that we understand for Jesus Christ and his deity and for the blessings that we have in Christ, all of this comes into focus when we operate in our priesthood because ours is a royal priesthood. The blessings we have in the church age are to operate in our royal priesthood capacity. And the book of Hebrews is going to teach us how to do that. And it's, uh, it's a marvelous thing. So when you want to summarize four chapters of Hebrews, what have we been doing? We've been highlighting God's king son. In fact, I think in the introduction, I gave you an outline that I had stolen from Zane Hodges. Zane Hodges had a neat outline on the book of Hebrews that I really liked. And in chapters 1 through 4, it was God's king son. And then in chapters 5 through 10, it was God's priest son. All right? And we have different references throughout the book of Hebrews about my son, right? To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? And the references to the son that we've had again and again and again. Even the book begins, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. So the sonship of Jesus Christ takes center stage. For four chapters, that's the king's son. And then for the uh, the chapters after that, five through ten, it's the priest's son. But even in this opening section, where the emphasis is on the king's son, there's still three times that there are references to his priesthood. Three times that the priestly ministry of this king's son is spoken of. And uh, we don't want to miss those, all right? Because they're going to kind of form the basis for what we do moving forward in the upcoming chapters. So the opening portion of this book highlights God's king's son, yet include, it includes three specific references to the king's son's other office as high priest. See, he has two hats, and he's going to combine them together in a way that's never been done before, in a way that can't be done until the second advent of Jesus Christ. And so uh, just to remind ourselves here in chapter 2 and verse 17, what did we have? He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so that's our first glimmer right there, that this king's son, the one that has a throne, the one that's told to go and rule in the midst of his enemies, he is a king that is going to come with a kingdom, but he is also a priest. He is a high priest. He is one that makes intercession. He is one that provides the complete propitiation or satisfaction to the Father. And so there's a priesthood ministry that's there in verse 17. And stressing, of course, that he identifies. He gets it. He understands our weaknesses. He's not just this sinless deity. He, he was true humanity as well. He knows our weakness. He knows our uh, every weakness because he endured every temptation. 
Verse 17, verse 18 says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And we better embrace this. We need to embrace this. It's, it's sad when I encounter Christians that deny this because they've got a, I think it's a flawed understanding of hypostatic union. It's a flawed understanding of, of, of course, true, undiminished deity and true humanity. How, you know, can deity suffer? Can deity uh, be tempted? But humanity can, all right? And so we want to understand how this works. They were true, legitimate temptations whereby Jesus faced volitional issues and faced everyone with victory, okay? And he suffered. If he didn't suffer, then uh, we got a whole lot of theology we got to re- reconfigure, <laughs> all right? He suffered, and that's what it says here. And because he did suffer... He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He relates, he understands, and that's, uh, that's powerful. And then we cross into chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, notice every believer has this title. His entire audience, there's no, there's no you know, special uh, you know, second blessing kind of believers that are above and beyond other kind of believers We are all royal family of God. We are all holy brethren. We are all saints in Christ. We are all partakers of a heavenly calling. Every church-age born-again believer is a heavenly citizen and a partaker of a heavenly calling. And then it tells us to consider, to spend the rest of our life thinking about the one that gave us life. Consider Jesus Christ, Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so this is what we're dealing with. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. The fact that we in the body of Christ, we in the church universal, we, and of course there's a local church component here at Austin Bible Church, but in Christ we are a holy people, a holy priesthood. That's our confession in Christ. Uh, The apostle and high priest of our confession. Was Aaron an apostle? No, he was a high priest. Okay? And there were a long string of high priests after him because every time a high priest died, his son became the new high priest until he died. And then his son became the new high priest. And, and the problem was, of course, is, you know, they kept dying. Okay? That's called mortality, humanity. That's just the way it worked. They also had to go in year after year after year. Every time a Day of Atonement would come around in the fall, time to go and do this Day of Atonement again. And it's a reminder of sin year by year. The blood of bulls and goats never took away the sin. It just simply provided a cover. It provided an atonement, which is a covering. And so by putting the covering on it, God righteously passed over. Okay? Because he was looking forward to the removal. God passed over every previous sin because he was looking forward to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus on the cross does what? He removes the sin of the world. All right? That's what we're dealing with. This apostle and high priest of our confession who offered one sacrifice for all time. One sacrifice forever. And then, of course, the third reference is here in chapter 4 in verses 14 and 15. He has passed through the heavens. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's a good thing. Okay? Uh, I was pretty small when I first read this, and my first thought was was bad, right? My thought was, 
that we have a high priest and he bailed on us, right? He passed through the heavens. So he came, he did what he did, and then he was out of here. I'm like, well, thanks a lot. Okay? Actually, then I learned later, that's actually a good thing. Because having passed through the heavens, what happened? Chapter 1, he took his seat at the right hand of majesty on high. And now in session, we have Jesus Christ as the head of the church, seated at the Father's right hand. And that's powerful. All right? And so, uh, tempted in all things. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. And, uh, and it's kind of a double negative and it's kind of awkward for us, right? Double negatives just cancel out and we get that. But it really reinforces it in a powerful way. And there's, it's, uh, it's a double negative in the Greek in verse 15. There's an earlier one that's not as obvious in English. In, in Well, verse 13, there is no creature unseen, right? So if there's no creature unseen, what does that mean? God sees everybody, right? Well, here too, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Thank goodness. What a blessing that he is our creator he is our Redeemer, but He also identified with us. God became a man. He walked our walk. That's extraordinary. So this is our priesthood. Now, this, um, this conclusion then, this high priest, since we have a high priest, we can hold fast. Since He did what He did, and since He is where He is, do we have an excuse for giving up? Is there any kind of excuse in the world why we would just uh, drop everything and walk away? All provision has been made. There is no excuse other than our own carnality and our own hard-heartedness, right? We can hold fast. We should hold fast. Every provision has been made for you and I to have victory in the Christian walk. Given what He's given us up front, given everything that we have in Christ, let us hold fast our confession. See how that works? Our holding fast is a consequence of what God's already done, what Christ has already done. We're not trying to earn it. We're trying to deserve it. We're not holding fast to our confession so that we can earn or merit something. We're holding fast to our confession because Jesus already did something. It's similar, I mean, it's the identical concept in how we got saved. He did all the work, we accept it. Same thing with our Christian walk, our priesthood. Our confession, we hold fast our confession. Why? Because he did all the work, we accept it. We enter within the veil that is his flesh. And we function together in the priesthood with our great high priest and with one another, by the way. We pray with one another in the same, in the same facet. So, the, um, the combination here of the king-priest, this is uh, interesting, the combination of king and priest was impossible for Old Testament fulfillment, yet it was prophesied by the Old Testament, prophesied to be fulfilled in Christ. In Zechariah 6.13, let's take a look at that. We won't spend a ton of time there, but I do want to look at it. Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. In fact, it's almost an insult to call him a minor prophet, but he's got 14 chapters here. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. For those of you that still flip paper pages back and forth. All right. Zechariah chapter 6. And, um, and remember, why is this impossible? The combination of king and priest in the Old Testament? Are you kidding me? For Israel at least. 
because the scepter belongs to Judah, the tribe of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah till Shiloh comes. And so the king, particularly once, you know, that's vested in David, that's the Davidic throne. That's a Judah throne. There's, there's nothing in the Old Testament anywhere about a Judah priesthood. There's not a clue anywhere about a Davidic Judah priesthood. Nowhere in the Old Testament. And that's the point that gets made that our Savior in, in the flesh wasn't qualified to be a priest because he was from the tribe of Judah. The priestly tribe was the tribe of Levi. All right, Different son, different tribe, different branch of uh, the descendants of, of Israel. And so if the king has to be from Judah and the high priest has to be from Levi, well, they're never going to cross paths, are they? Until a new priesthood is inaugurated in Christ, the Melchizedek priesthood, one that is not on the basis of an earthly requirement, one that is not on the basis of human lineage, one that's on the basis of an indestructible life. Just keep these phrases in mind. We're going to be coming back to them. Because the indestructible life is our heritage from Christ. He is the high priest who never dies. He is the high priest with the indestructible life. And he shares that life with you and with me. That's what we have when we get saved. And so this is our priesthood in Christ. In Zechariah chapter 6, there's a message here. And the, the key verse is in verse 13. But if we back up just slightly... Um, verse 11 take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest now, if you've never done studies on the post-captivity Lewis has done some I recommend these it's part of the Bible we know the least the worst of all we're very rusty and bad on post-exile Old Testament but um we have a high priest named Joshua, which is really Jesus, right? Joshua and Jesus. We have a king, not really a king. His name is Zerubbabel. And he should be king. He would be king, except for the fact that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, vacated the Davidic throne, took him away to captivity for 70 years. And then when they were allowed to come back, Cyrus let them come back. The Persian, Cyrus the Persian, let them come back. But they couldn't have the Davidic throne. Zerubbabel governed as a Persian governor in submission to Cyrus, in submission to the Lord's servant, the Lord's shepherd, Cyrus the Persian. And Zerubbabel, what a humble believer, was entitled to the throne but never claimed it. And really, Zerubbabel kind of prefigures Christ, right? Because Jesus is the heir of David. He's entitled to the throne, and he doesn't claim it either. He won't claim it till second advent, till the Father says, go take your throne. So Zerubbabel's amazing to me. And so when you study Ezra and Nehemiah, when you study the ministry of the prophets, uh, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, when you study um, these, these political leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah are political leaders, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are prophets, all right, but then you've got a high priest named Joshua, and you've got a governor named um, Zerubbabel, and these are marvelous characters to familiarize yourself with here in the uh, in the late Old Testament period. So uh, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and say to him, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: Behold." 
a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. All right, and so he's got a name. It's a messianic prophecy, and it's connected to Isaiah's messianic prophecy. And yet, when Isaiah speaks of a, of a shoot, a tender shoot that comes out, uh, by the time Zechariah is prophesying, that shoot is now a branch, and it's later. Second advent. Jesus didn't try to build a temple first advent, but he will build a temple in the second advent. It is he, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That's a prophecy, all right? And until second advent, until the millennium, it cannot be fulfilled. It has to be fulfilled in Jesus. And this is what was prophesied by Zechariah. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. God has a king's son who is seated at his right hand. And that son is a high priest, the apostle and a high priest of our confession in the body of Christ in the church age. So this combination of king and priest was impossible for Old Testament fulfillment, yet it was prophesied to be fulfilled in Christ. And now if you know anything about Old Testament history, if you know anything about in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when, the, uh, when Malachi closes and the Old Testament closes, there's 400 years of silence. There's 400 years with no writing prophets, no speaking prophets, all right? And in between, so when the, when the Old Testament closes, we're kind of left, you know, uh, the Jews are back in the land again. They've built the new temple already. And they're serving the Persians, okay? And Esther and Mordecai are still back there in Persia. And it's still kind of a Persian world. Well, there's a lot that happens in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, including the Greeks, Alexander the Great, the conquering of the whole Persian world, and the Romans. By the time the New Testament opens, the Romans are in charge. And so in between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Greek era and the beginning of the Roman era as far as Gentile dominion over Jerusalem is concerned. All right? And if you ever want to read those stories, if you ever want to read those, they're not Bible stories, but if you want to read those in the Apocrypha, in 1 Maccabees, it's all the realm of the Maccabees. And it's, it's good information historically. 1 Maccabees is, is very reliable historically, and you can co- correlate it with Josephus. And you get the Jewish history there. And when you read that, what you're going to learn, though, is that uh, some patriotic Jews fought a war of independence and they broke the bonds of the Greeks. They broke the bonds of the Greeks and they thought it was a good thing. (laughs) All right? Even though Daniel had given them a prophetic message that said Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, right? Even though Daniel had given them the whole prophetic calendar, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then the rock comes from heaven and the kingdom of God comes to this earth. They had a calendar. They had a timetable. They were waiting for their coming of the Christ until they, they experienced Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then decided to take matters into their own hands. And the Maccabees revolted, and they won. The Maccabees won their freedom. And uh, Joseph Maccabeus was, uh, was a Levite. He was a priest, and uh, he took a crown. And he became a king priest. Okay? 
And it's just tragic, I believe. Absolutely tragic. And God stepped in and overruled and the Romans came in. Pompey came in and just conquered everything. And it was under Roman dominion after that. Because uh, the prophecy of Daniel will be fulfilled. But the Maccabean era, when the king, when the priest became a king, and they, to this day they look back at that as a golden age. And they look back at that and they celebrate. They have holidays for their victory over, over uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and how they had victory over the Greeks in any event. Um, no, you're not going to have a king priest until Jesus returns in the millennium. Then you'll have a king priest and his priesthood will be a Melchizedek priesthood. Because by the way, the, the Levitical priesthood also has things to do in the millennium. They too will have a millennial future alongside the Melchizedek priesthood that we have in Christ. All right. So anyway, I encourage you if you want to read those things to read those things. Um, it is interesting to me. There were some conservatives. Aren't there always? There were some conservatives, um, Bible scholars that stood up and they were God-fearing and they loved the Bible and they said this is wrong. And they said a, a priest can't be a king until Messiah. And they were wrong. And they were absolutely accurate in their biblical... Uh, and, and so they, they formed a party to stand in opposition against the Sadducees. Okay, and this is, the, this is how the Pharisees were birthed. The early Pharisees were, were marvelous. God-fearing, Bible-believing, conservative. You know, don't, don't be confused because they're, kind of, they're arrogant and wicked by the time Jesus comes along. In the early centuries, the Pharisees were, were, were heroes because they stood for doctrine. They stood for the Scriptures. And they knew that the Maccabean throne was wrong in, uh, in that process. Holding fast to our confession. Now in this chapter, holding fast to our confession results in a confident prayer life. In this chapter, holding fast to our confession results in a confident prayer life. As we see in verses 15 and 16. And so um, we have boldness, we have confidence, we have every right to be there. We're not going in prayer and acting like uh, we don't expect God to do anything. <laughs> How insulting is that? You know, we, we should have confidence in our prayers. We come boldly before the throne of grace, boldly with openness, transparency, and say, Father, here I am. When we get to chapter 10, uh, this actually little verses here get expanded. There's a much longer development of our confession in chapter 10. And um, I didn't write the verses down, did I? We'll look at that here shortly. Homologia. Homologia. Homologia, which you should know if you ever know 1 John 1 9, okay? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, okay? That's the verb. Homologeo is the verb, homologia is the noun. So you have a background for that, right? Everybody here knows how to confess their sins. All right. There's more to confession than just simply getting back in fellowship. <laughs> All right? Uh, the act of confessing. That's our procedure for cleansing. That's our procedure for restoration of fellowship. But it's based upon a larger concept of confession. The fact is that we make the good confession. Jesus made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. And he wasn't getting back into fellowship. <laughs> Jesus never said. 
Timothy made the good confession when he was ordained as a pastor teacher. He made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We make the good confession when we stand publicly before God and men and angels and everyone and we are we undertake the water uh, the ritual of water baptism. We stand before the world and we make the confession that we have died and been buried and have been raised in Christ. That we are in Christ. That's our confession. And so we want to hold fast to that confession. Really that means we want to hold fast to our identity as church age believer priests. You can put it in whatever terms you want, but that's our confession. Okay? And it's kind of unfortunate to me that church history kind of stole the term and they used it. So maybe you're familiar with the Westminster Confession or you're familiar with the Augsburg Confession or you're familiar with, there's an assortment of other confessions through the years, right? So if you have a denominational background or a Lutheran past or a, you know, a Presbyterian um, past, whatever, okay, um, there have been other confessions in church history that still remain to this day as written documents, Right in terms of doctrinal statements, this passage in Hebrews four has nothing to do with a doctrinal statement. Okay, it's not the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is our confession as born again believers in Jesus Christ. That's our confession. That's our confession. Okay, and if you got saved as we all did, if you got saved during the church age, then you were immediately ushered into that confession at the moment of your salvation. Right. If you were saved in the Old Testament, if you were an Old Testament believer, then you had to make the good confession to cross into the body of Christ when that opportunity was made available to you. That happens all throughout the book of Acts. That happens through the book of Acts. That happens in Hebrews. That happens throughout the New Testament time. The Apostle Paul would encounter people and they didn't know about Jesus. All they knew about was the baptism of John. All they knew about was the Old Testament. He would run into people waiting for Messiah to come. And he said, guess what? Messiah came. And so in that case, an Old Testament believer, what does he have to do? He can't get saved a second time, can he? (laughs) He's already saved. Once saved, always saved. He's not going to get saved a second time. But he is, as an Old Testament believer, he's going to make the good confession. And he's going to identify with a risen Savior, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And when he makes that good confession, he too will undertake the water baptism ritual to identify as buried, raised, living in Christ. Anyway, that's homologate. That's our confession. This is the, the church universal. Whether you're part of Austin Bible Church or Lost Pines Bible Church or West Houston Bible Church or whatever, you, you're part of whatever local church, but we all share this confession, the good confession in Christ. And so we saw it in Hebrews 3.1 where Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here we see it in Hebrews 4 where the good confession tells us that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace and obtain mercy to help in time of need. And then in chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, this good confession comes back again. And this is where we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And this is our confession. This is the passage too that teaches us that we all get to enter within the veil. We all are in the Holy of Holies. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. 
It's a new and living way. In the Old Testament, Aaron had to kill an animal before he went in there. We go in with a living way, the living Savior, through a new and living way, which he inaugurated us through the, uh, for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we're going to study all that. That's why they had a laver outside the, the uh, courtyard. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider. Now in the past we've been considering Jesus, right? Now we're going to consider us. You and me, one another. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Consider how in our priesthood we can be the, the goad, we can be provocative, we can provoke one another to agape love and good deeds. Not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here in chapter 4, the confession results in a confident prayer life. In chapter 10, the holding fast results in a confident priestly ministry. A confident priestly ministry. And that confident priestly ministry is poking each other. (laughs) All right? Poking each other to love and good deeds. Saying, hey, are you living the Word of God? You know, it's that elbow to the ribs. It's that poke. It's that goad. It's the ox go to the ox rump hindquarters. It's the giddy up on the on the oxen that's pulling your cart. And saying, we all need it. Who doesn't need it? Is your appetite what it what it used to be? It could be more, couldn't it? And so we we goad one another. Hey, what's your ministry pursuit? What's your giftedness? What are your effects? What are you doing? How are we how are we serving one another in the body of Christ? This is how we uh, this is how we do this. All right, we're going to come back and uh, a week from this is a kind of a short Sunday with communion, but um, we'll finish this chapter next week because we we got to deal with a double negative with our, with our sympathetic priest, our sympathetic high priest. He sympathizes. He gets it. So guess what? Your pastor might be oblivious. Your husband can be clueless. Uh, other people you're counting on just don't have a clue. Jesus does. All right, Jesus does. And so uh, we go to him in prayer, and he understands. He understands. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the priesthood that we have in Christ. Thank you that we can all, right here, right now, simultaneously, we are offering up these prayers before you, a sweet-smelling savor before your throne of grace. Father, we ask for your blessings as we study. Ask for your blessings after we study. In the days to come, bring this scripture to life in our thinking that we can see the applications to be made. Thank you for being so faithful, Father, and thank you for your Son that makes this possible. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.